Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. So should we just crack into it now? Crack into it. And Jodine, if you need any translations... I'm pretty good at it after a few years, so just let me know. <laughs> well, Sarah, when you scheduled me, you're like, how are you placed for, you know, the state? I'm like, oh, I love that. How are you? How are you placed? I know. Like, what's your schedule? I mean, it's just so it's charming, you know? Um, well, it even, really is. Sorry, are you saying that I even write charmingly? Yes, you do. You sound charming. You write charming. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's, it's true. It's quite enjoyable. Yes. I'm enjoying this already. Um, well after that my head is so large I don't know if I'm going to be able to carry on with the interview welcome back to what is actually a another bonus episode for stop the killing podcast two weeks ago we did a bonus episode with the fabulous retired FBI agent Jodine Weber who is joining us today it's such a pleasure to have you back. Uh, and last time we met, we didn't have Catherine with us. So you guys have never met before. And how unusual is that to bump into an FBI agent via a Muppet like myself? Well, you know, it is unusual that we didn't cross paths and be conscious of it. But as we were talking before we started recording here, we determined we were at the FBI Academy at the same time as new agents in training and overlapped a bit. She was three classes ahead of me at the academy. So we were living there in that gerbil cage at the same time. Wow. For context, how many people would have been in that intake? When we were training at the academy, there were 50 people in a class. I think there were maybe eight classes underway at the same time. So 50 times eight, that's math. I, you know, I don't do math. Right. Right. Plus you had the DEA training there at that time, as well as the National Academy, which was police officers coming there for their training program. So it was quite a packed campus. But yes, I mean, it's just so unusual that we were so close to potentially walking by each other every day and not knowing it. 
So we know a thousand people in common. And we probably yes. walked around in offices at the same time and just don't know it. That's exactly right. That's And I'm sure we probably had mutual friends and we just don't realize it. Oh, yet. for sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah, wow. I, I'd start rolling names, but then this would become a completely different podcast. It's like when anybody from New Zealand meets another person from New Zealand, we think it's so small that we will have one person in common. I feel like that might be corner go. <laughs> do you? Do you? I bet you do. You can generally get down to a first cousin, I would say, in common. It's not unusual. Hey, do you know what's really making me just to have a bit of a creepy crawly moment when you're talking about how you probably crossed paths somewhere and you never realized it? The case that we're talking about today with Jodine is we're talking about the Idaho 4 case. And if you want to know more about it, go back and listen to the full bonus episode that we did with Jodine. Yes. That's fantastic. Weeks ago. There was something on there about the motive and understanding perhaps who was the target. And one of the ways it is that crossover of you know, finding how people's cell phones and their movements interlaced with each other. So just when you were talking about how close you were, like that six degrees of separation, I was just thinking it could possibly be exactly the same in this case. Um, now, I've segued off quite quickly there. I'm not going to lie. But <laughs> to get us back on track, Jody, can you give us just a little thumbnail for those who have yet to listen to the bonus case on the Idaho 4 case. Certainly, last November 13th, 2022, it was discovered that four college students at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho, that's in the northwest portion of the state of Idaho, were brutally stabbed to death sometime overnight. And it's a university campus town, and it just created just shockwaves, not only here in the United States, but around the world, people had become fascinated by this investigation and this tragedy of these four college students who were just so savagely murdered. Well, approximately seven to eight weeks after these killings in November 2022, a perpetrator was arrested and he had traveled to Pennsylvania where he was residing with his parents over the holiday season. And he was arrested and then eventually extradited back to Idaho, where he did make his initial appearance. And we were able to review the probable cause affidavit, which gave us some background as to what law enforcement knows about this individual and how they were able to get to the point where they could arrest him. And really, there are three crucial areas that your listeners need to know about. Number one, a knife sheet was left at the crime scene under the body of victim Madison Mogan. And on that knife sheet, on the snap, was DNA left by the perpetrator. Number two, the perpetrator drives a white Elantra, and there are numerous video camera footage recordings that were obtained by law enforcement that shows this white Elantra driving in proximity to the crime scene, not only in the hours prior to the murders, but at least 12 times prior to the actual night of the homicides. In indicating that this perpetrator cased the location and was casing these victims. And then third, what's so significant 
is that the movement of the white Elantra vehicles, in conjunction with that, the perpetrator's cell phone moved in conjunction and would ping off cell phone towers. Now, of note is that the perpetrator turned his cell phone to airplane mode during the window of time that law enforcement believes the homicides took place. So they see the Elantra driving around prior to the homicides close to the 1122 King Road location. His cell phone is pinging the towers. Then it goes to airplane mode. The homicides take place. And then 20 minutes after the homicide, he comes back online. Ding, ding, ding. It's crazy because it's it's very much, a lot of times people think of investigations as evidence, facts, evidence, facts. But the other thing that it, we look for as investigators, it's what's not there. And this That's is a correct. classic example of what is not there. There's no reason exactly. why his cell phone would disappear. I think, and Catherine, maybe you can opine on this as well. I think the fact that he turned that phone to airplane mode and then turn it back on, I think that is that's almost the most damaging thing against him because no normal person who has their cell phone with them does that. And at that in time the middle of the, of the night, night. Too, right? Exactly. exactly. It's, it was four o'clock in the morning. That's correct. They believe the homicides took place between approximately 4 a.m. and 4.20 a.m. And they have that white Elantra fleeing the scene at approximately 4.20. And then it goes on this long, circuitous route south of the city of Moscow and travels for approximately one, one hour and 10 minutes. And it is believed the reason he didn't just take the straight shot home, which was about a 10-minute drive... The reason it is believed he did take that circuitous route is that he was disposing of evidence. There's levels of intent that you have to show or mens rea, and it's a conscious action. Conscious action. Boy, I can't say that. You say it, Sarah. You'll say it, and it'll sound pretty. <laughs> a conscious action. There you go. See? Beautiful. <laughs> and there can come up with an explanation for why someone might turn their phone off or turn it to airplane mode or something. But it's, it's it, you're asking a jury. I mean, exactly. It's a reasonableness. And, and, and a jury and a judge are always going to look at what's reasonable. That's what the law states. And it just jumped out at me in the affidavit. The moment I saw that, I was like, ping, smoking yeah. gun. It does feel exactly. like that. And I do think, as we talked about previously, Sarah, I do think they're going to hone in on that geolocation data from the phone and potentially even from the Elantra, depending on how advanced the technology is in that car, they'll be able to marry up geolocation data as to exactly where he was. Did he pull off on some side road on that circuitous route? Did he go to some campground or some remote area? If so, why are you there at 4.30, quarter to 5, 5 a.m.? in the morning right after these homicides took place. And it is also noted in the probable cause affidavit that he returned to that area later that evening from approximately 5.36 p.m. until about 8.30. He was also down in that area and his phone was turned off. So why did he go back? Why did he go back? There's something down there. He was doing something down there. Do you think that's linked to, there was talk of a mattress that he had purchased um, to sit on in the in the car last time we I, spoke. 
he did from the search warrant that was executed at his apartment in Washington state. There was a receipt that indicated that he had bought a mattress covering or pad. And so it is theorized or speculated that potentially he bought that covering to cover up the seat in his car. Or perhaps, you know, if he's leaving the crime scene and bloody, that would help prevent transfer of blood evidence into the Elantra, into the vehicle. Or perhaps when he left the residence, it has also been speculated, and this is mere speculation, but perhaps he stripped down and bundled all the bloody clothing into a mattress covering and then transferred it to a duffel bag or something to avoid getting blood spatter onto the seats of his car and the interior. Now that, again, is speculation, but the fact that this receipt with this mattress covering her pad, the fact that was seized, that tells me law enforcement believes it's significant to the overall scheme of this case. When you talk about the geolocation and knowing that he's gone and revisited a spot twice, which is, you know, odd in itself, obviously, at the times of the day that he did that, how close can they get to an actual spot? If somebody's digging a hole, are we talking the space of, you know, two miles? Or they can they get it smaller than that? Can my understanding is within three feet. Oh and maybe Catherine God. knows more about that. But the FBI cellular analysis survey team, when they pinpoint in on geolocation data, that's even more specific than cell phone pings. Because right. the cell phone pings, they measure the strength of the signal and triangulate that to three towers. But when you're zoning in on geolocation data, you're doing, you know, longitude and latitude coordinates and really pinpointing in. So that's why I am so curious to find out what they know about that route and where he went. And I'm curious, where was he when he turned off his phone when he went back there that night? Yeah. Because I think that is going to be very significant. Wow. We spoke. It would have been two weeks ago. What has developed since we spoke last time? Well, we had just an extensive hearing on Friday, and it re- involved many pretrial motions that have been filed not only by the defense, but also the prosecution. Significantly for the defense, the defense has filed a motion claiming they want DNA profiles related to the investigative genetic genealogy that was utilized as a lead generator to help law enforcement zone in on Brian Koberger as a suspect. Now, the prosecutors say, we don't have any DNA profiles. And the defense isn't buying that. They're saying, you know, this is a long process. They put four witnesses up on the stand to testify about how it can take quite a long time to develop these family trees in investigative genetic genealogy. And how is there not any work product? Well, the prosecutors were insistent. We do not have any of the information you are asking for. And further, under Idaho state law, you are not entitled to this under the rules of discovery because investigative genetic genealogy is not coming in at trial. This was only a lead generator. The only thing that's coming in at trial will be the buckle swabbing of the perpetrator's cheek and matching that to the DNA knife sheet, the DNA left on the knife sheet, and then also the water bottle 
that was seized from the perpetrator's parents' trash can. Those are the DNA items that will be coming in at trial. So the prosecution saying technically that doesn't involve investigative genetic genealogy. So therefore, you're not entitled to this under Idaho's rules of discovery. Now, on the defense side, the defense attorneys are arguing, we don't agree with you. You wouldn't have known to go to that parent's trash can if you hadn't used investigative genetic genealogy. Now, according to some of the premier experts in investigative genetic genealogy here in the United States, I've listened to interviews with them. And one of them in particular, her name's Cece Moore, she has said that she has been involved in approximately 70 prosecutions where investigative genetic genealogy was utilized for lead purposes to identify a suspect, but that ultimately law enforcement then went out, conducted investigation, was able to seize trash or some other sort of DNA sample, and that is what was utilized to prosecute those perpetrators. And she said those convictions of those perpetrators have stood up to date. Now, they haven't gone to appeal, but the case law out there supports the prosecution's assertions at this time. But this case is getting so much attention, and certainly defense attorneys across the country are raising this as an issue that should go up up the chain, up to the appellate courts, potentially up to the Supreme Court. Is there a Fourth Amendment violation here as to illegal search and seizure? Let me be a lawyer here. You lost me on the Fourth Amendment challenge. What point of it would be an improper search and seizure, a Fourth Amendment violation? Here's what the defense attorneys are arguing. They're saying that there are loopholes in investigative genetic genealogy, whereas the person who gives their DNA and spits into the tube Right. They have to check a box for it to be sure. released to this third party genetic service. And that sometimes people's data is released who didn't authorize it. So they're claiming that is a Fourth Amendment violation. But the question that the prosecution yeah, that's not going to fly. Raises, right. Yeah. No. And if I can just be a lawyer here for a minute, the investigative genetic DNA matches. Those are often pulled from an investigative standpoint, not from DNA from the FBI's DNA database or state agency's government's database, but from the things that you think of like Ancestry.com and places like that. Mm -hmm. And there are questions about whether or not law enforcement should be able to access those. That is still, I think, in the litigation world. But the bottom line is that there are agencies that do access Ancestry.com type genetically matched DNA, find my family kind of things. There's a bunch of those agencies. And when law enforcement taps into those and they see, oh, there's a similar DNA match to this person, to these 25 people, and you know, six of them are still alive and two of them live in, in this state and only one of them lives in Idaho. Oh, okay, maybe we have that match now. I mean, that's how they use the idea of matching up genetics from an investigative standpoint versus the kind that you might take into court. But everybody who commits their DNA in one way or another voluntarily to Ancestry signs waivers. And I don't, I'm not picking on Ancestry. I'm just using it as an example. So there's waivers. Signed. There's not a Fourth Amendment violation there when people are inputting. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not a judge or judges choose to find a conflict with that or a challenge to that. 
Well, and I think, you know, what the judge said on Friday is, look, defense, you're claiming that there's all these profiles out there and work product and material that someone's got to have. Well, according to the DOJ policy on investigative genetic genealogy, it says in there that law enforcement to include the FBI, which is under the DOJ umbrella, is not to download, it's not to retain any of this material. So it's very possible the FBI does not have this, that, you know, right. this, whatever uh, the, the defense is saying they have. And so the judge said to the defense, look, you want me to rule on something that I'm not even sure exists. So exactly. I'm, not optim- exactly. I'm not optimistic. We're awaiting his written ruling, but I'm not optimistic, one, that he is going to rule in favor of the defense. But number two, the judge has laid out such an aggressive schedule now leading up to trial. I think he's he is not going to give them that because that if they did get something like this, then they would file a pretrial motion. Oh, we need more time to review. And then that would bump everything. So I don't see a delay here. I really don't. Plus, everybody who puts their information into some genetic, you know, database, this subject of this case, he has no standing in court to object to their potential violation of their fourth amendment rights right right their dna it's only his dna that he can or challenge to his dna that that he can challenge legally he doesn't have any standing in court so it's it's a fascinating lawyerly story that makes me want to go sit in court and listen like i did in the oxford high school case (laughs) i just had to go sit in court for a while just to listen that is a very interesting prosecution there as to whether juvenile shooters should face life in prison or be sent Mm -hmm. to a mental hospital? And what culpability do the parents have for buying a firearm for a juvenile? Oh, yeah. We'll have to talk about that in another time. But my gosh, Leah, let's go through that. Okay. Sorry, Sarah. Don't worry. It's interesting because we had a listener reach out to us who was a student at the Oxford High School and had asked for specifically a bonus update on that. So we will put that one in the calendar and for sure do it. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. 
So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Tell me, you said that the judge will be giving a written response to that. When is yes. that expected? And- we expect that any time now. Now, there were some other things that happened at that Friday hearing. Number one, the judge dismissed a defense motion to stay proceedings. And in my opinion, the defense is trying to have it both ways. On one hand, they are trying to adhere to the speedy trial rule and get an October 2nd trial date. But then on the other hand, they filed two pretrial motions to stay the proceedings. So the judge found that the defense's affidavit for why they wanted to stay the proceeding to be vague, and he dismissed it. And so the biggest thing from the prosecution side was they wanted to drill down on the defense about the alibi or the lack of alibi, if you will, that the defense has put forth regarding the perpetrator's actions on the night of the homicides. Under law in Idaho, the prosecution is allowed to demand an alibi. If your client has an alibi, please present it so that we're not blindsided at trial by these unknown witnesses that crawl out of the woodwork and provide an alibi for the perpetrator. So they demanded an alibi. Well, the defense came back and said, yeah, he has one, but we're not going to tell you what it is, more or less. Well, the prosecution didn't like that. And they came back and they filed a motion saying, under state law, you must provide us with addresses, locations, and any witnesses of where he was. Well, then the defense came back and they said, well, our client was out driving around that night. Now, in part, that plays into the prosecution theory. The defense would not say where he was driving around. And so the prosecution came back on Friday and said, all right, we will accept the fact that he was out driving around, but where, what roads was he on? And furthermore, were there any witnesses? Because you don't get to come forward on October 2nd and then suddenly put a witness on the stand that corroborates this driving around. If you have a witness to him driving around and he was somewhere else driving around, you got to tell us about it now. Well, now the judge has put a deadline on that for the defense. If he has an alibi, the prosecution deserves to know about it by September 8th. And, you know, Sarah, too, if he says he's driving in the next town over, investigators want to go to the next town over and look for every surveillance camera, every traffic camera that's going to show that he wasn't in the area at the time. Yeah, it seems crazy to me that you you could even get to that stage and not have an alibi. I would have thought that was a baseline for any court case. So you're telling me that there's states that don't have to have an alibi is what I'm hearing. Well, you know, quite frankly, let's face it. If he was somewhere else with someone else that could attest he was in a different location, they would have been screaming from the rooftops months ago about it. We wouldn't be here. Have an alibi. Exactly. You know, also in in court, it's a one way road, Sarah. You're not required to prove that you didn't do it. The state is required to prove that you did do it. So even if you were with your lover, you know, someplace, you don't have to disclose that. So we have coming up on September 1st, we have another hearing and that will be where the defense wants to toss out the grand jury indictment. And I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I don't think they have a shot at that. 
They are claiming that the threshold or the bar for a grand jury is at reasonable doubt. And the prosecution has come back and said, no, the threshold or the bar for a grand jury is to find probable cause. So just yesterday, the prosecution, their objection to this defense motion to dismiss the grand jury indictment, they have filed that with the court. And I read it last night. They lay out quite specifically that the Idaho Supreme Court, the statutes on the books, they all say that the threshold for a grand jury is at probable cause. And then they cite that this is not a novel approach that the defense is taking here, that multiple defendants in Idaho have tried this approach before to try to get their grand jury indictments tossed out. And in every case, the prosecution could find it hasn't worked, that judges throughout the state have dismissed it. And what the prosecutors did in this case is they attached to their objection all these cases where other judges ruled, this is nonsense, this has no bearing. And so there is this hearing scheduled for September 1st, but I don't think the defense is going to get anywhere with it. Now, there is suddenly a status hearing scheduled for tomorrow, Wednesday, August 23rd, I don't know what will be covered there if there have been things worked out behind the scenes since Friday, but I anticipate the possibility the perpetrator will be back in court tomorrow, which is August 23rd as of the date of us talking and recording this. So it will be interesting to see. Now, certainly the judge has set September 1st as a deadline for all discovery. That's less than two weeks from now. So everything's got to be turned over. And then there's a deadline for pretrial motions. And then the judge has set a final hearing date of September 22nd to hear oral arguments on any pretrial motions that remain at that time. And then jury selection will start or begin at the end of September. It is expected to go at least three days, more if necessary. The judge has a final pretrial hearing with the attorneys at the end of September and then He's ready to go 8.30, October 2nd, Pacific Coast time. So it will be interesting to see, and Catherine, maybe you want to offer your opinion on this, if the defense will try to file a motion for change of venue. A lot of defense counsels know there's no way to get a change of venue. And a lot of defendants demand and insist that their client that their attorneys file on their behalf a change of venue. But it's incredibly, incredibly unusual for a court to grant a change of venue because the argument that's made by defendants is always like, everybody in this town hates me now and everybody knows about the case. And would that be the criteria for a change of venue? Every case would have to be tried in another jurisdiction because that's the reality of it. Plus, the jury system allows for a trial of your peers, people from your community with your community standards. So judges rarely grant them. I'd be surprised at this point if there was a request for change of venue. Those usually come earlier in a case. Could be a surprise, but my bet at the betting window is no. And I would agree with you as to the possibility of the judge calling them back to get status updates because my read on him is he does not want a spectacle. He doesn't want fireworks. He doesn't want this turned into a circus. I think courtroom decorum and professionalism is very important to him. That was my take, especially after Friday. And 
in previous court filings, there were some real inflammatory and sensationalistic comments in some of them. And I've noticed in the recent filings, that's toned down quite a bit. And I have a feeling there was a in-chambers meeting with the judge. To me, I noticed the change in some of the filings after that in-chambers hearing. I think he told them to tone it down. I don't think he likes that. You know, that would surprise me. The worst thing from a judge's perspective is for their courtroom to be out of control or for the actions of what's going on in their courtroom to be impacted by what's occurring outside the courtroom. And this is such a high profile case. We're not going to have anything that's designed for a television show. Talking about cameras, how will it be covered? Are they allowed to have cameras in court? Well, I was just going to mention that on Friday, they had a pool camera for court TV. And that was the video that was disseminated then to all the media outlets. Well, the judge did reprimand the camera operator because he has made a previous ruling that the camera operator is not allowed to zoom in on the perpetrator alone. It's got to be a wide shot of the perpetrator sitting at the defense counsel table. He doesn't want it to be just this, you know, look at every little breath the perpetrator takes or look at every twitch or swallow or anything like that. So the judge is very conscious about what the camera is catching in his courtroom. He also reprimanded the media about reporting things that hadn't even happened yet in court and speculating. And he is really, really conscious about the media and what is being conveyed to the public and to the potential jury pool out there. So as of right now, we anticipate there being camera coverage, but we don't know if it will be live or if it will be on a delay. And the judge has previously said he could change his mind about having cameras in the courtroom. So I know there were some media outlets with some anchors who were saying, don't goof up. Don't goof up. Don't zoom in on the perpetrator because we want a camera in the courtroom once the trial starts. And a lot of people feel like that is for the public to see and understand court proceedings so that there isn't speculation about, well, what really was said in the courtroom? You know, it can have an adverse effect if the public isn't allowed to view the proceedings. So a couple of things, Sarah. It's still incredibly unusual to have cameras in a courtroom in the United States. It's not done. The judiciary system has always considered it to be relatively disruptive that people would play to the audience, especially if the camera uh, play is live. Go back to the O.J. Simpson case, right? Usually, though, when there is a camera, it's a single feed that's fed to everybody else. But it's interesting that, Janine, you said the judge admonished the court camera guy and admonished the media because those are so opposite. Absolutely. A judge can control the camera in his courtroom or her courtroom, Mm -hmm. but the judge has no control over the media and what the media speculates and what they release and how they find out things. So that's that's that high wire that the judge is trying to walk. Yes. And, you know, it's interesting because regarding the cameras in the courtroom, in this case, the prosecutors put forward why they will go with whatever the judge says, basically. Whatever you rule, Your Honor, we're, we'll go along with it. But there was another very high-profile case recently in Idaho, the Lori Vallow-Daybell trials. And cameras were not allowed in that trial until her sentencing. And that judge wrote that he almost felt that he should have 
allowed the cameras in because now there was all this speculation like, well, did she really receive Mm -hmm. a fair trial? And, Mm -hmm. you know, so it's interesting how it goes back and forth. I was astonished as a prosecutor in Chicago, the number of people who didn't realize courtrooms are open. Anybody can go into a court and watch a trial anytime. I used to have a lot of homeless people who would come in and watch my trials because it's warm or it's air conditioned, depending on the time of the year. And Uh, they're learning. They're learning and they knew all the defense attorneys. They knew which judges were good. I used to have this one guy who would come into my trials. He's like, oh, this judge sidebars all the time. You know, so it's funny. It's really funny. But yes, you can go watch trials. They're open Mm -hmm. to the public and they're incredible learning experiences. Yeah. And I think that's when the conspiracy theories, you know, come up. Conspiracy theorists, I think, maybe don't realize that there's a transcript and there's a record of everything that did happen. There isn't a need to speculate. There's just a need to actually do the research to see what occurred. You bring up a good point because there are uh, so many conspiracy theories about this case out there. And, you know, to me, I will not engage in conspiracy theories if it's not in the probable cause affidavit, if it's not in a court filing, or if it's not said by law enforcement in a press conference. I don't talk about it because I don't have any basis in fact that any of that ever occurred or has any validity to it. Mm. Well, I think my mouth's about to write a check that my body might not be able to cash because I think that we should definitely do a bonus series covering the trial. So if people are interested in this case, they can come to our podcasts, both of us respectively, and get that information without conspiracy theories and have your legal eagle eyes on it. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I'm in. I'm in. Let's do it. Let's do it. We've all got so much time in the day. Perfect. (laughs) I love it. Well, tell me what else came out of that court proceedings for you, Jodine? Well, really just this aggressive schedule coming up here. The fact that discovery is due September 1st and that the judge has set all of these deadlines and he admitted this is aggressive. He's like, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this, but we're certainly going to try. I am clearing my calendar. He has set trials beginning October 2nd. He anticipates it will run through at least November 17th. So you're talking, that's a long trial. So, you know, they've got to have their witness list ready to go. They've got to have their expert witnesses, disclosure lists to exchange in the coming weeks. So there's a lot that's going on and, you know, it's game time. That's the best way to say it. It is game time. Here we go. And it looks like this could go October 2nd, which quite frankly, you know, many have speculated, oh, this will get bounced. This will get kicked back. As of right now, it looks like it could go October 2nd. You have to have a higher priority case to have something bounced or kicked back, I think. You have to have some extraordinary circumstances. And I think that's the tell the tale on the status hearings. Because if the evidence is there and, you know, whether defendant chooses to plead out or something, the judge wants to push, push, push. It's the state's responsibility to meet speedy trial requirements. And they only have so many days under state law or federal law, depending on where you're being tried. So, And the state indicated they have turned over all of their discovery. They are awaiting one outstanding report. But wow. other than that, they have turned over all of their discovery. And it is significant amount of discovery. But they've met their burden, according to the state. So we'll see. 
we'll see. But you can imagine all the digital evidence and electronic evidence in this case, yeah. enormous. And there were multitudes of search warrants that went out. I think it will be very interesting once we get to court to hear what did they uncover through all these sealed search warrants. And then ultimately, will the surviving roommates testify? What did they hear? What did they text each other that night? Did they try to call or text their roommates? Did they hear screams? We're going to hear a lot from those surviving roommates. And certainly, I think we need to be cognizant of the ongoing trauma that those two surviving roommates may be experiencing. I just can't even imagine how horrific, horrific this must be for them. Remind us, Jodine, where can people find you and all things Jodine Weber? Yes, I have a podcast myself. It's called Caught in My Web. It's on patreon.com. You can subscribe there. I drop episodes five days a week, not only on this case, the Idaho 4 case, but certainly all the other big true crime cases around the world. And then I have a website, jodineweber.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jodine Weber and on Instagram at Weber Jodine. Amazing. Well, if you are listening and you are keen for us to do coverage of this case, let us know. Drop us a DM on at Stop the Killing Stories on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. And until, I guess, the 2nd of October, stay tuned and come back to you with an update then. Sounds great. Thank you so much, ladies. I really enjoyed it. Thank Can't you. wait. Talk soon. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Hello 
it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew. But after reading police reports, it became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.